Podcast where liberty is our mission. This is for Monday, January 28th, 2013. My name is Ben Stone, and this is podcast number 267. My friend uh, Nima Vidati was kind enough to uh, allow me to interview him, and so that's what you're about to hear. We, uh, uh, My wife and I have been on the road in our motorhome since December of 2012, and um, and so we are recording this from a uh, RV park um, in southern Alabama, and so there are technical difficulties in this uh, interview as there have been in the last few podcasts. So um, part of the uh, part of the podcast was lost. We did the best we could to salvage as much as possible. I hope you enjoy the show today. Thank you very much. With me on the podcast is Nima Vidati. Nima, welcome to Bad Quaker Podcast. How you doing, Mr. Stone? Lovely to be here. I'm a huge fan of your show, and um, I'm surprised we haven't done this yet, but uh, better late than never. Yeah, I am also a huge fan of your show oh. and of your work in general. I, I just uh, got to see the other day your little news piece that you did uh, about the gun thing, um, with including the sheriff. What's his name? Sheriff Matt? Sheriff Matt. Yes, Sheriff Richard Mack, who was also in our Guns and Weed movie. I was lucky enough to find him again at a rally at the Texas State Capitol that, that uh, my little brother Frank wanted to go to and cover. So I went down there and saw Sheriff Mack, interviewed him again. He didn't remember me. He didn't remember being in Lander, Wyoming for Freedom Fest. And uh, he didn't seem to remember Guns and Weed, or maybe he was had just blocked it out of his head. I don't know. He's an interesting character. Well, first, let me plug the video. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll try to put a link in today's show notes to, okay. the, uh, to the YouTube video. Because it's really good, it's it's very professionally done. It looks like it's just literally ready to go on CNN or whatever. It was so well done. <laughs> well, the camera, some shots were a little shaky. I wasn't used to working with that camera, but other than that, yeah, I think the technical stuff worked out fine. I mean, really, it was a little handy cam, and so we got to it late. That's always been my problem in anything I do is I tend to be a little bit late to things so we didn't get to get a good vantage point um, so I literally just raised my hand in the air as high as it could go and turned the viewfinder down and looked up at it and tried to get a good shot of Sheriff Mac for those few sound bites but the sound was so good I just had to use it anyway um, I, it's kind of cliche but it's it's fun to see somebody you know stand on the steps of a state capitol and yell from my cold dead fingers you know <laughs> Yeah, Sheriff Mack, I, I hate to call him that because I'm violating my own principles of right. Quaker by, by right, using his right. title like that. But th- th- this guy is such a, uh, a contradiction. Yeah. If, he ever sought, if he ever sat down and like thought through his own processes, he would have to um, – you know, he'd have to come to some conclusions in his life, recognize his contradictions. He really would. Um, Michael pointed out on the blog post he did that uh, <laughs> he's ordering you not to follow orders uh, because there's a, a soundbite in the middle of it when he says, you know, I'm not a sheriff anymore, but I was. So I'll still exercise some authority, you know, underline that authority. He says, I order you to not give up your guns if they come to take them or something to that effect. So basically he's he's ordering you as an authority figure in his own mind to not follow some other authority figures. Um, and then his his other answer when we were talking about the Constitution, because that's his whole thing is, you know, the Constitution can save us. Uh, I, I asked him, I said, you know, there's been so long, decades and decades, you could maybe even argue since the Constitution's inception that uh, the government has ignored it as a barrier to the government's own actions um, and instead just done what it wanted to do anyway. And he was like shaking his head like, yeah, they've trampled on it. And I asked him, so at what point do we realize that, you know, just a piece of paper is nothing but that it, it can't really serve to protect people from the state. 
Uh, and his answer was, you know, basically, I, I won't give up on the Constitution. We have an answer to this. We got to get these local people to um, to enforce the Constitution, the sheriffs, the school board members, whatever local officials. But I don't understand why that thought that it can only be somebody who's been ordained as part of the state or part of the government to save us. Why can't we save ourselves is, is what I'm thinking. I think it goes beyond not thinking through a position and it comes to the point of actual, you know, and I say this all the time, it comes to a point of actual faith. A person has, they're so obsessed in their mind with their worship of this, of the state that they can't imagine a world uh, where everything is not a part, is, everything mm-hmm. is not directly connected to that. Right, right. The other thing I wonder too is both with Sheriff Mack and Ron Paul and some of the the sort of libertarians, maybe even Andrew Napolitano, is is it something in their head that's that's trying to keep their livelihood? You know, if it's not just if that's the reason they don't really sit down and, and get super introspective uh, about consistency in their message, is it because the gravy train for Sheriff Matt consists of going uh, to places like Texas and in the West and Wyoming and Colorado and yelling about local governments versus the federal government. And that's that's just what he does. That's like his job. So I wonder if it's a I guess it's not of a certain age thing, but it's it feels like of a certain career level thing, maybe. There, there's a I think you could make a good argument to that, that, um, you know, we know, for instance, if a judge is uh, getting paid on the side by, let's say, uh, uh, you know, a, a golf resort mm-hmm. where he gets paid on the side as a spokesman for the golf resort. And then a, a case comes in front of him and it's involving that same golf resort, then he would have to excuse himself from that as a conflict of interest. Right. And, and and the reason why we accept that in our society as being the way things ought to be is because uh, it's almost impossible to judge something fairly if you have, you know, uh, a financial stake in the matter mm-hmm. one way or the other. Right. So, you know, there I'm sure there are cases where a person can, like a Ron Paul or whatever, can actually be in those positions and still want to destroy the state and tear it down and do all these other things. But, I, but you know, that's got to be the extreme exception to the rule. I think in most cases, you're going to find, uh, you know, the source of income influencing the person's uh, belief system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Ron Paul, how do you feel – what do you think Ron Paul says to Rand? Like, what do you think their interactions are like lately? Because I feel like – Rand is sort of entertaining in his head this run for presidency in 2011. And like you said when he called into our show, um, he did some grandstanding against gun control, but he did it from Israel, like paying homage to uh, to what has become almost America's uh, – you know, America's almost a client state of Israel at this point. At least the American state is. Um, do you have any thoughts as to – because I just wonder that. You, you followed Ron Paul for a long time. Uh, you ha- are fond of saying you were a Ron Paul backer uh, you know, before a lot of us even knew his name you know, back in the 80s. Any thoughts as to what Ron Paul must think of, of Rand? You know, it, it's really hard to say because you know, the, the father-son relationship is, is such a weird thing. I can sit down with my son and, uh, and we can talk about some things regarding the liberty movement and so forth. And we have a lot of common ground. And then I wander the conversation in the wrong direction and I just lose him. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think, well, I wish – and it's and it's totally – now a parent is not supposed to compare their children, you know. But <laughs> it's, totally, it's totally different when I have a conversation with Kai. Right. Um, she'll almost lead me in directions where I haven't thought of before yeah. or – you know, a challenge. She regularly challenges me on things and says, "You know, okay, well, if you believe that, then what about this?" Yeah. Um, and it's definitely fun and, to hear and, that on on your podcast together as well. It's one of the, the yeah. highlights. On the other hand, I can talk to my son on about music, and uh, and and we have a far better uh, communication. If I if I start talking to Kai about music, we're going to hit a dead block really quick. Where she locks up and I lock up, and that's the end of it. And the next step we're going to go is, uh, you know, no, you're wrong, and I don't want to talk to you about it anymore. So <laughs> I don't know. It's it's really strange. 
I, I know this though. When Rand Paul was in school, and specifically in high school, mm-hmm. he rode to the to the private school that he went to. He rode there with his dad and Lou Rockwell in the car together because huh. his dad Lou Lou wor- worked in his dad's office. Right, right. He was like a congressional so, aide or something like that. Yeah. yeah, and so they would ride together to work at the Capitol, and they would drop Rand off at high school on the way. And I can't help but to think, you know, assuming Rand has this little streak of rebel in him somewhere, mm-hmm. um, how would you ride to school every day with those two guys <laughs> and still be the dirty, the dirty status that Rand right, Paul is? Right, right. Well, al- although, I mean, Lou Rockwell wasn't a great anarchist back then at that point. I mean, not, not to the level he is now, at least, if he was working as a congressional aide, right? I mean, I feel like he had to have come a long way from that. Where, to where he is now than back in, in the days when they were dropping Rand off at school, right? I would assume so. I think, um, looking at some of his older writings and stuff, I think he was fully on board on a theoretical basis as far as his understanding of, you know, uh, of the government as aggression. Mm-hmm. But I think for, and, and I'm, maybe I'm just projecting my own situation onto Lou Rockwell, but um, I know with me, uh, when I was employed in the uh, uh, military industrial complex with the, you know, in, in the aerospace industry, mm-hmm. I had in the back of my mind all the time this knowledge that this monster is just horrible, and but but yet I'm taking money from it to feed my family, yeah. and it, and it was always a contradiction in there, and the the only thing I could really do with it is just you know, kind of grind my teeth together and and just keep pushing through until I could get to a place where I didn't have to anymore. Right. Well, I feel like that's why the state really has us by the balls, and it seems like that's one of the main things that needs to be addressed as far as moving towards a free society, I think, is how do we get that out of the picture? It's so hard to find work these days, or honest work, that doesn't involve the state coming in and applying aggression at some point in the industry you're working in. That's very true. Uh, I, I'm without being too specific. I know of a person who runs a business, and they sell a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And um, the, and the guy came up with an idea uh, for a specific garment, mm-hmm. and he and so he you know he put that idea to work, and he actually produced this garment. And then the government comes in and wants to buy it from him. And he was really conflicted in his mind. If I sell it to them, it could save people's lives. But if I don't sell it to them, there are people that are going to die because they didn't have this product. Mm. Yet, by selling this to the government, I'm actually making it easier for the government to send these people into war and kill people. Mm. And he was really conflicted on it. And, uh, you know, my advice to him, and, and again, this is probably twisted from my point of view, having made a living in the aerospace, aerospace industry. My advice to him was, first off, you might save somebody's life with this. That's a good thing. They're not actually going to use this thing to kill somebody with, and and it's inanimate anyway. It doesn't have a life of its own. It's not good or bad by its nature. Mm -hmm. So you're selling it to the government and getting money back out of the government is, you know, in a very real way, you're taking out of the giant cesspool of government wealth that it's going to destroy one way or the other because it will destroy as much as it can all the time right and you and you're salvaging some of that wealth uh wealth out of there and doing something better with it so you know i advised him to take the money and sell him the the stuff you know but i'm not absolutely sure that's the right thing i think it is if we can get any Anything we can do to get money out of the government, I, I think we should probably do it because it's just going to destroy that wealth anyway. Right, right. Yeah, it, it's it's a hard nut to crack, and I think it's a really important question. Um, you know, my wife was working in proprietary education, you know, for-profit colleges. She was working for one of the bigger players in the game and was getting paid really well, um, but she 
she felt she had to leave it. Uh, she felt a moral obligation to leave it. And that is one industry that the salaries and the pay for the employees, uh, it's really twisted by the state because without the federal subsidies for education, they wouldn't be able to charge such exorbitant rates for their education. And most of that, or a big chunk of that, goes to the salaries of the employees. Uh, and not only that, but it creates debt uh, in the names of the people that they sign up for school. And um, this place was signing up homeless people, people who had no means or way of paying the debt back, no place to live. Um, and after some heinous things like that, she just had to leave. So I feel like there is something to be said for, yes, get get what you can out of the state. But it, it's hard to universalize that. I mean, if, if that's all we're doing, if, if, if we're like, OK, it's great to take from the state, then um, aren't we part of the problem? Aren't we increasing the demand for the state or or is it? really a thing to where back on the other level of it, on the other end of that, the state does collapse faster. I, I don't know where the, the equilibrium point is, I guess. Uh, and this kind of comes to uh, back to some of your experiences working in mainstream media. Ah. I, was talking to, I was talking to Dave Ridley the other day and kind of getting his perspective on his years uh, working for mainstream media and kind of contrasting that over what you've said uh, a few times. But I wanted to ask you, um, now you had... You know, a good career going on in mainstream media, and you could have really, I think, you could have really gone somewhere in, you know, within the corporate structure and within all the silliness that is the media. But you, in in a very real sense, you took the high road and said, you know what, I'm not going to do that. I'm not, I'm just not going to be dirtied by that anymore. Right. And that's why I think I, I couldn't have because I couldn't have lived with myself. Uh, you know, in the end, I'm me and I, I, I feel the way I feel and I have the beliefs that I do have. So I think that that's what would have eventually prevented me from I, I would have found a ceiling at some point where I just couldn't take it anymore. I was glad to stop it early. You know, I stopped it after my second market uh, because I realized where it was going and that it was only getting worse for here from there. Um, you know, in Wyoming, uh, I was um, a reporter. I started off as a bureau chief in Riverton, super small place. Um, technically, it was for all of Fremont County. So uh, it was the Indian Reservation, Riverton, Lander, a few other tiny little towns, uh, basically a rural community. And I had complete autonomy. I was out there. There was The station wasn't there. I was what's called a bureau. So I ran everything out of my apartment. I basically called my own shots, decided what stories to cover, how to cover them. I didn't really have any kind of outside pressure on me. I mean, every now and then the news director would call and be like, oh, how'd you miss this? And, you know, I'd say, oh, I'm sorry. I just, nobody told me about that. I didn't know that was going on. And then I'd work to, to correct that. I'd get in touch with those sources. Um, and so I thought, you know, that that's great. This is how it's going to be. I'll get to do my own thing. Um, you know, I was able to to, to say what I felt should be said. Uh, one, one of the, the second story I actually did um, – <laughs> I talked about uh, Rockwell's Law, which is sort of this joking thing on the Lou Rockwell blog that whatever the government says, you should do the opposite. <laughs> I actually said that on an ABC affiliate. Um, so it was really different back in the early days. Um, and it slowly, as I moved up, uh, I, I began to see what really would be happening if I continued to move up. So I moved up to, to Casper, and it was a little bit different. Uh, the news director was there and established at that time. You know, because when I first started, they were in between news directors. So I also had more free reign because of that. Um, once I moved up to Casper and became the weekend anchor and a reporter during the week there, I saw a little bit more of, of how the structure was. But uh, still, you know, I didn't have anybody approving or editing my scripts. I still had a lot of autonomy. And once I moved up to Washington State, uh, I really realized that this was not something I could abide by. The news director there was very obsessed with sticking to what they called our brand, you know, quote unquote. They had done um, a focus group, uh, several focus group studies, they paid like several thousand dollars for this and decided what our viewers wanted. And what they wanted was was some very statist things and what they like to hear about. And so I would, I would pitch something like say one time this, this guy called and he was, um, 
he was technically a felon, but he was out of jail for some time. It was a drug war felony, I believe, you know, something that he didn't commit any violent crime. And he was having a really tough time finding a job in the environment. And he said, you know, a lot of us are. It's, it's a tough economy for everybody. It's even tougher for us who've already paid our quote unquote debt to society. And so I thought, you know, that might be an interesting piece. You know, what's life like from that point? And the news director says, people don't want our, our viewers don't want to hear that. They don't want to give credence to somebody who's been in jail. The guy did the time. He should. He should deserve to to have a, you know basically he should deserve to have a crappier life from now on you know wow things things like that and you know she didn't say it in those exact words but that was that was the sentiment I felt you know and and it's not just the news director it's it's everybody in the whole culture because a lot of the people you interview as a reporter they're bureaucrats you know you, you go talk to the city you go talk to the city council members you talk to the person in the the fish and hogs department or whatever the case is they're they're all part of the bureaucratic culture you talk to cops a lot they're they're all part of the law enforcement culture and it's a culture of you know we're the ones that are quote unquote public officials we decide what happens and we're in a class above the, the average citizens and you know there was this idea of, you know, every story you have to go out and get, quote unquote, real people, you know, man on the street or somebody affected by the law or the rule or, or whatever's going, which, yeah, at first glance, it seems like, OK, that's a great thing. But the average there's a lot of horizontal enforcement. So, you know, you go you go talk to some public official about some new law, you know, pretty much everybody you talk to, anybody you can find. Uh, at least anybody you can find that's willing to talk to the news media is all for it. You know, they're they're either all for it or they're all against it in another very statist way. So there wasn't really any kind of thought to given to principle ever. Everything uh, as far as controversy was either placed in the left-right status paradigm. You know, Republicans are going to get this, Democrats are going to get that, um, and everything was based in the status paradigm uh, as far as the way money works. Like they, they didn't really have a good grasp of how money works uh our part of our brand was was finding ways the government saves you money you know things like that which the government can't really save you money so i, I would go out and, and i ended up doing stories where i talk about how the jail is renting out its uh you know extra bed space to uh prisoners from other counties and how great this is for the taxpayer because they're making money they're not spending as much money but the thing is it's not like the government ever gives you a rebate check you know, it's not like you're really saving money. They don't take the saved money and send everybody some of their taxes back as far as sales tax and city tax and property tax, at least not as far as I know. You know, they, they put that into other government projects and other government things. And I guess the thought in the newsroom or the thought with the brand was, well, this can then go to pay for parks or roads or, or things like that. But I don't find those as legitimate uh, things in a free society anyway. So in the end, I, I had to, I had to get away from that culture, uh, and I had to get away from the the control because there was a lot more control. You know, not only did the news director clamp down on what stories you could do, but on the way you worded your stories themselves. Um, you know, throwing shots at prisoners, like well, you know, in that story I did about the jail funding, like well, they, you know, the prisoners should be there anyway, kind of things, and and you know, keeping us safe, and, and all these kinds of statist bromides that apparently people who watch the news want to hear but I don't want to say and I don't want to live on the web forever some of these stories do I don't want them to live on the web forever with my name on them so I really had to put a kibosh on that you know when I first wanted to get into news the reason I wanted to do it is because I wanted to tell people what I thought was the truth and even if you're saying facts that are true you know uh, the city council plans to do this and that if you're not uh, using analysis to break down what that really means for people in a principled way, I think you're doing a disservice to people. And I couldn't abide by doing that disservice any longer. Uh, so I left and I left with a, a long note that was a retirement note. I was retiring from, from local affiliate TV news, um, partly because they did not want to let me leave. Uh, you know, I tried to quit three times. They did not want to let me leave. I had to be very forceful. And in my letter, I tried to be as as sort of ANCAP as I could to make them, you know, hoping that, well, they'll be like, well, this dude's crazy. We don't want him anyway, saying that firemen are thieves and, and such. So <laughs> they finally let me go. I had to pay them some money back because it was in the contract. And I, I guess, you know, I, I abide by contracts and I signed it, so I, I did pay them some some money so that I could get out of the contract uh, about a year early, and so that that was I guess a long, uh, 
list of my, my main experience. If you have any follow-up questions, I'd be happy to answer those as well. Okay, let's save this file first in case the internet dumps on us. Yeah. And, uh, and we'll come back and hit some more questions in that, in that area. All right. Did you know author Taryn P. Lupo has a new novel out called One Nation Under Blood? When a rejuvenative blood technology is developed that pits the young against the old, the government must take firm steps to address the war of supply and demand brewing across generational lines. Blood is not the only thing bought and sold in this dystopian tale of technology, economics, and independence. Vampires are now very real, but we never expected them to wear our grandmother's best Sunday dress. Folks, thanks for sticking with us through the break. Ben Stone with Bad Quaker Podcast with Nima Vidati of the Freedom Fiends and also uh, rapper Nima V. <laughs> uh, we, uh, we had the pleasure of working together long distance on your, uh, on your Christmas video. That was a lot of fun. Ah, yes. A gun for everyone, um, which people seem to like. It's got uh, over 5,000 views now. You know, Not on I Own Me levels, but uh, nice little video I did, and uh, I really do appreciate I, I thank you for your service, Ben. Ben, of course, played the <laughs> Santa Claus that was uh, getting ready to give people the gifts of tools for self-defense, uh, guns, of course. And um, the idea and the thought for the video was mainly inspired by the the recent trend to react to the Newton massacre with um, with tyranny against gun owners and um, well as you say against property rights really because that's what it really is a gun is nothing more than a piece of property and the government trying to control that is them trying to control what property you can and can't own and how you can or can't own it. Um, going back to the news thing, I have. Um I, for a very long time, I have uh, really had a bad attitude with local news mm. because of their some of their methods that they use. And and it, recently, now that my wife and I are on the road, we took off in December in the RV and headed out through the south, and we're driving around and camping at different campgrounds and and everything. And so I'm getting different uh, uh, news feeds from different local news. And I'm amazed at how it all sounds exactly yes. alike. Yes. It's, it's same shit, different assholes, right? Um, <laughs> you know, we actually did learn about that in journalism school. This is, this is widely accepted even within the industry. Uh, you know, some view it as a problem, some don't. But uh, one of our professors in journalism school wrote a book called White News. Uh, and it was basically about how, you know, even in places like New Mexico and, and Hawaii, places where the majority of people aren't the average white American, the news is exactly the same. The anchors look exactly the same. You know, they're not all white, but they're usually the same mix of white, black, and Asian, uh, of, of blondes, brunettes, and girls and boys. It's always the same mix because that's how a uh, that's how the industry works. That's how news directors think that people want, and that's and there's 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 always these consulting groups. There's there's a select few of them, and they try to find out what, and they pitch that to stations. Station owners generally go with that, especially anywhere. From the lower mid to the upper markets, uh, where actually a lot of the stations are owned by the same company. You know, like most of the stations um, in that northwest section where I was working in Washington State, uh, many of the stations were owned by a company called Fisher Communications. Um, there's also stations that are many stations owned by a company I think called Belo, and so uh, it, because of the way the industry works, it's all this is the format, this is how you do it. You got to stick to this because. Uh, well, partly as well, I think it's increased because profits are slipping. And so they're trying to find some kind of standard of what works, lowest common denominator stuff that we can that break even if not turn a slight profit. Because that's that's really how local TV works now. It breaks even or it turns a slight profit. I'm also amazed at how many canned stories come into local news places and they uh, then they tell the canned story. I don't know if I'm using the right terminology or not, but all they basically do is read the voiceover for or re, you know re, you know read the script that goes with it, show the thing that that they've been given, which is basically a commercial. Uh, I'm probably not using and the right do you terminology. Mean, do you mean like um, are these national stories? Like they take something that uh, CNN gave them or something that the the ABC network or CBS network gave them, and then they read the reporter track instead of playing the, the voice of the reporter? Or do you mean like press releases where they go out and cover something some corporation is doing or some NGO or some kind of charity is doing? 
I think it's probably more in the press release end ah. because it's it's usually something like uh, a recent study shows that drinking one glass of wine a day <laughs> makes you Superman, you know, or it's some it's some uh-huh. stupid yeah. thing like that 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 just there's no actual facts to support it. There's right. just some kind of a vague, you know, and yet it's coming through uh, within the course of two days, in driving through three different cities and three different TV stations. I hear the exact same. Story word for word. Yeah. 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 And it's like, wait a minute, somebody fed this to you. And it doesn't necessarily have a brand name on it. You know, it's not like from the wine industry, but it's got to be coming from somebody. Well, I mean, journalism has its sister industry in the PR industry, and they actually get paid much better than than most reporters uh, and news people in uh, certain markets. But um, yeah, I mean, what, what. what it works like, what it what it works like for producers, or how it works, I guess, for a lot of producers, is they try to pull from a variety of different areas, and in certain segments and certain sections, it's considered okay for them to to take press releases, or or you know, the news director will send a reporter out to cover a press release, but you know, the inbox in in your news station is going to be mostly press releases. It, your inbox is going to be full of people trying to get coverage for whatever it is. And every now and then, news directors will send somebody out. Uh, it actually does happen to where they're more likely to send somebody out if they've had a good relationship with the station. You know, if they're advertisers, they have a business relationship with the station or the station owner. Uh, they actually are more likely to get coverage. I have experienced that. And um, news directors will sometimes fight with station owners about that point. But uh, as you would imagine, the station owner usually wins that fight. Another thing that I've noticed, you know, since I have someone who knows the industry here, I'm taking advantage of it and probably boring the listeners with stuff that only <laughs> interests me. But I noticed back in uh, in the early 80s when ATMs first started popping up everywhere mm-hmm. that news – uh, local news seemed to be biased against them for some odd reason. And every time they would get the opportunity, they would tell about how you, uh, about ATMs uh, uh, being the source of uh, revenue to local thugs and robbers who hang around in the bushes near them. And the ATMs have mechanisms put on them secretly in the middle of the night. And then you come up the next morning and swipe your card. Then they own everything that you own. And, and there's, and there just seemed to be always this anti ATM bias with, with local news. Uh, recently I was in Birmingham, Alabama. Well, just outside of Birmingham. Oh no, I'm sorry. This happened in, uh, uh, Nashville campground, uh, just outside of Nashville, we had the news on, getting everything ready before we take off and everything. And the news story pops up uh, overnight: a man was shot at an ATM machine uh, at an ATM and robbed. Mm-hmm. And um, no details yet. The police are not releasing the name. Blah blah blah. It's the typical kind of a story that you get like that. As the story progressed, and as we heard the same story on different local channels. As it turned out, the victim of the shooting may or may not have actually visited the ATM. The shooting took place several blocks away from the ATM. (laughs) The man was running away at the time, running away from whoever was chasing him, shooting at him. And it's possible that the shooters may have known the man. Mm And how could this possibly be the ATM's fault? Right, right. Well, I think I think that that's a symptom of a larger problem. Uh, that problem, to me, being that what gets ratings, what news directors want you to put on, is stuff that grabs your attention. So it's usually stuff that'll be slightly scary, something that you'll be like, "Oh, I'm, that worries me," because I go to ATMs or I do this or I do that. So I'm going to spend my time watching this to see if there's any kind of useful information that will help me avoid whatever the problem is. And I feel like objects and certain categories of things become a shorthand. And I don't think this is a top-down thing. I think this is almost an anarchic order in, in the news industry because it, it, it's with reporters. And reporters will often look at other stories, and so will news directors from other markets and their competitors. And they'll be like, oh, that's good. I bet that got a lot of viewers. Let's do that. And so it almost becomes an echo chamber. Um, I didn't experience any kind of ATM hate in my experience, but I could definitely see something like that happening. Another thing is... There always seems to be some kind of blame on on objects. Um, there's also blame on on small crooks. That there, in in news culture, 
you know, you have to set up, uh, you're basically telling a story and that, that's part of the problem too, is, is the most important thing is not delivering facts or analysis. The most important thing is telling a compelling story. And anybody who, who does any kind of media knows that compelling storytelling involves conflict. And for conflict, it's a lot easier to have some type of villain. And so the media never points up, never kicks up or punches up at, at the powerful as being a villain, or it rarely does. I don't know if I've ever seen it, especially in local news. Um, what it tends to do is is pick smaller villains, you know, car prowlers or inanimate objects um, or the lack of laws. So I, I definitely see how, how the news culture is sort of an echo chamber of pointing to guns as, well, this inanimate object is causing all these problems or ATMs are causing all these problems. Uh, or bad road signs. You know, you get that a lot too. There, there's not enough stoplights here, or there's no crosswalk here, and so kids are dying, or or kids are your kids are in danger because you say something like your kids are in danger. The soccer mom demographic, which is key to advertisers, and the, and the news really wants to get that demographic. Uh, you know, that, that makes their ears perk up. So these kinds of of shorthand for almost fear-mongering, but, but really the, the goal is to get attention, not to make you scared. It's just that fear happens to do that. Uh, so I think that that's the problem, and that's why you see something like all of a sudden everybody will demonize this one thing. People will demonize cribs. And I think part of that, too, is because um, in academic culture, in journalism school, uh, we view ourselves, or they, journalists in the mainstream, view themselves as... You know, they call themselves the fourth estate. They feel like they're part of the establishment. They're part of the public process. Um, some of them consider it public service to be a journalist. And, and in that, they believe that part of their job is to help to create the way policy works, to help to tell people what the problems are, what to think about, um, so that you know, legislation and laws can get passed towards that. So in their minds, part of the fix for any problem is is getting new laws or, or getting more government resources to fix problem A or problem B. Um, so it, it's really a cultural thing for me, at least from what I saw. And that really plays into what things that people like you and I and and Michael Dean and and you know Larkin Rose and and all of us in our movement we accuse the media of that of just simply being an arm of the state and being the propaganda arm driving people to think the way the state wants them to think to think right right yeah but I I, I tend to not. I don't think it's a conspiracy, and I, I like to make that – well, not in the sense that there are certain people forcing people to talk this way or – but it, it's much more subtle than that. Um, you know, Another subtle way stuff like that happens is, is access. You know, The way you show certain um, public figures, uh, they're going to be more or less willing to talk to you. Um, for instance um, – I was working on this story about uh, the city was trying to annex this piece of the county. They called it the donut hole because it was this little enclave of still being this rural county inside of the urbanish area of the surrounding city of Pasco. And um, one of the county members, it was really important for me to get him as a source, one of the county commissioners. Uh, I really wanted to get his take on how he was going to do this because uh, you know, there were rumors that the county was working with the city and the county was going to sell the residents out. And so it was really important for me to talk to him about that. Well, this one thing happened. Oh, it was the, the Reno Air Races. There was a crash in the Reno Air Races um, a few years ago. And it was a tragedy and it was national news. And one of the things is they want you to localize. When something like that happens and there's a local angle to take, they want you to do that. Well, this county commissioner happened to be there. Like he was a few feet away from where the plane crashed and killed people. And so I interviewed him about it and uh, I tried to build that relationship like, you know, let's let's talk about this annexation thing. I'd really like to get the inside scoop on that. And he, he basically says, you know, well, we'll see how this interview turns out. We'll see how I, how, how I like to work with you. It, it wasn't necessarily a threat, but but that that is sort of held over you. Um, and this guy was very savvy about that kind of stuff. He actually was in the Air Force for a long time, and, and part of his job was working with the Pentagon to train people on how to talk to the media. Uh, that's another point I like to bring up is, is a lot of tax money is spent training public officials on how to manipulate, A, the media, and B, the, the citizens through how they manipulate the media, what to say, what not to say to reporters, what information to give out, what information not to give out, and how to give it. So 
that that tension in that relationship between journalists and quote unquote public officials is really important to how the finished product on the air that the viewers see turns out. And that explains really why you very rarely see a really hard-hitting question given to a politician. And then even on the rare occasions when you see it and then the politician dances around it, it's rare to see the the reporter go ahead and follow up with with basically saying, yeah, that's really nice. You didn't answer the question. Please answer. (laughs) You know, uh, side stream media will do that. Like, uh, oh, the, like what you do. <laughs> well, and people <laughs> but, criticize him for that. M- mainstream journalism will criticize uh, those alternative media sources, um, even when they're there. They'll, they'll call them, you know, activists. They'll say, "Hey, this is jur- this is supposed to be journalism, not activism." Uh, but I think good journalism is, to me now, what I'm seeing is honest activism can be better journalism than what people think of as fair or balanced or you know not taking a side, because when you try really hard to not take a side what you tend to do and what the industry tends to do is just let both sides PR guys get their information out you don't really get analysis and you don't get anything coming from principle as a foundation so you end up just getting propaganda so I would say that honest activists uh, can tend to make better journalists than you know mainstream uh, academia trained journalists I think that's a pretty good point and and really I guess I don't know how I don't know how it could ever be done within the framework of the mainstream media for the problems that we talked about in the first uh, part of the of the podcast today. But I guess it could be argued that the more uh, the more of us that get into mainstream media and then try to tilt it. I'm thinking specifically of this guy in Cincinnati that's really popular uh, among libertarians and, mm-hmm. and liberty activists. I can't his name. I'm stalling because I can't remember his name. Do you know who I'm talking about? Ah, Ben Swan. We talking about the TV yeah, reporter yeah. Ben Swan. Yeah, he is amazing. Yeah. He's amazing. <laughs> he makes me sometimes rethink my decision to leave because, like, how did Ben Swan do it? Um, but I think it might have been. I'm not sure on this. I'm just speculating completely. But uh, you know, you could also say, well, how did John Stossel do it? And John Stossel spent years. He was successful at 2020 for being this sort of uh, lefty consumer rights guy. You know, a Ralph Nader esque kind of guy. And then he had an awakening. So I wonder if that happened to Ben Swan. If if he had found his way to that that pretty medium-sized market or upper medium-sized market and then somehow had an awakening. I don't know. It's interesting. It'd be, it'd be interesting to ask him that if, uh, if, yeah. uh, it'd be fun to interview the guy that does the interviews. That would be, I guess, where I'm... <laughs> right, right, right. But getting to that point, how could you get there without ha- either not knowing and just f- going with the flow for years, like you're saying with Stossel, and, or... Um, or just selling your soul for years and, and staying quiet until you got to the position. And then, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think the awakening theory is is probably more likely. Yeah, I think so, too, because, you know, most reporters don't think any don't, don't think twice about any of this stuff. They don't feel like they're compromising their morals. Um, this They just feel like what they're doing is good, you know. Uh, so it, it seems to me you could spend decades and decades uh, doing the normal mainstream news thing and then have an awakening. And you might look back with regret on some of the stuff you've done. Um, but I don't, it, it seems to me like that would be the likely expi- explanation uh, as opposed to somebody who went in with certain principles and somehow stuck it out. Because if you go in with certain principles, the only way you get to the top is to swallow those often and not say anything and keep your mouth shut. And I think if you do that, the more you do that, the more cowardly you are. And then you're not principled in the end. So so you sort of lose that, that desire to fight. I, I worry that that's a lot of times what happens to people who think they're going to change the government from the inside out. They're like, well, if I can just get to this power level or this level of power, then I can make some changes. But in order to get there, they compromise themselves and that sort of dirties the water, I guess. So they're not really pure anymore. Once you you take that pill of compromising your morals and not being principled, I don't know if you – I think it's harder to come back from that, I guess. I think so. Um, well, we've uh, we've hit another 20-minute segment here, so how about if we save the file, sure. throw in another commercial for our listeners to enjoy, and we'll be, back, we'll be right back in about 30 seconds. All right. Do you have an Amazon account? If you don't, let me encourage you to set one up. 
Setting up an account is free and it's easy, and Amazon has great prices, and in most cases you can avoid paying sales tax. Plus, if you're careful and lump your purchases together, you can get free shipping. And Amazon has almost anything you can think of, plus it's safer and cheaper than driving all over town. When you buy stuff, if you follow the Amazon link at badquaker.com, Amazon will give Bad Quaker a tiny portion of the purchase. It won't cost you any extra, but you'll be supporting this podcast. Thank you. And thanks for sticking with us through the commercial break. Ben Stone with the Bad Quaker Podcast on the line with Nima Vidati, and we're having an amazingly good connection compared to what I've uh, yeah. experienced for the last few days. This And Nima, your voice sounds wonderful. Ah, yours does too. It's excellent. Yeah, I'm I'm recording on my end too. I think we're going to put this out as an anarchy gumbo. Michael's been working really hard on um, on getting us to the point where we can be on mainstream radio. Um, and so he's... Uh, needs some of that pressure to be alleviated. So I've I've been trying to do you know a gumbo a month or something like that, help them out a little bit. That's good. I'll put a link in today's show notes for the Anarchy Gumbo yes. uh, website, which is kittyfeet dot is it did kittyfeet dot com or did kittyfeet dot org? I think it's dot com. <laughs> I don't I know. I think it's kittyfeet dot com. Right. But I'll look it up after I'll, the show uh, and yeah. Take exactly. <laughs> Just go to badquaker dot com and then in the show notes. And the link will be right there. Right, right. I, I guess speaking of radio, I, I kind of feel like you're, you were questioning, you know, how do we tilt the main, or how do we sort of take the mainstream media back? I don't even know if that's you know, an appropriate thing because I feel like technology is changing the way uh, media is distributed in the first place. Although there is something to be said for platform. I mean, people still do give more credibility to something they hear on the radio or TV than they do to something they hear on the podcast. At least the majority of people do. And you know, I'm totally biased in this because this is where we're moving towards. But I, I, I kind of hope that that getting talk radio, uh, you know, taking that over, which um, I feel like anarchists and libertarians of all stripes are poised to do. Uh, we tend to be very good speakers, or at least we have a lot of very good speakers in the movement, and we have we have a, a giant farm system. I mean, there's so many liberty-oriented podcasts out there that are, are such great quality. Um, I feel like this would be a very easy transition, would be for us to take over talk radio as you know the sort of Republican conservative, conservative Rush Limbaugh people sort of took it over in the 90s. I think that there's a, a, a very likely possibility of happening. I believe so. And, uh, you know, if you look at it from uh, lo- looking at the state and looking at mainstream media as a part of the state – and looking, realizing that the state at some point, you know, I say pretty regularly that the state is doomed to fall of, uh, of its own weight once it gets large enough and powerful enough and, and its host, uh, us, its victims, begin to realize it, then it's almost guaranteed that it's going to fall at some point. And, um, and thinking of going into journalism not through the mainstream media but through other avenues, whether it's YouTube or podcasting mm-hmm. or you know blogging or whatever it is that that is your forte, uh, we're we're providing without being polluted by the system, we're p- providing the next stage for a new generational shift away from you know. I, uh, look at it this way: I'm in a I'm in a an RV park full of a lot of old people's, you know, a lot of people 70 or older. Yeah. And these people, uh, when they all, if the weather turns bad outside or whatever, they all come into their motorhomes and their RVs of different kinds and log onto the internet. And it ah. slows the internet connection down here <laughs> dramatically. I, I mean, all it takes is for a cloud to come over and the wind starts to blow and the, and the internet connection slows down. Right. Well, these are like 70 year olds. You think about what are the 15-year-olds doing? Yeah. At least, you know, their their perception of television um, is completely different from, the from like, the 50s or the 40s age groups or the 30s right. age groups. So as we're coming in and dominating this new industry and we're bringing the media with us in a, in a clean way, not that, you know, not the canned patent – um, you know, shiny plastic uh, version that the state owns and operates. Yeah. But we're bringing in this crazy radical thing that's completely different. 
hear me? It, it did get bad quality there for a little bit. Yeah. Do you want to? So anyway, I think um, as we do that with with media, with um, and become and let the alternative media become the dominant power on the internet. Uh, we can do the same thing with government. I know, without getting into details, there was a little bit of a of a conflict between two very well-known people in the liberty movement just in the last week or two about a, a pay issue. Yeah. <laughs> and rather than going to the government, rather than you know saying, "Hey, uh, I need to get the National Labor Relations Board involved in this," we settled these things among us, and we literally become a voluntary government. Uh, we don't need to, to get elected. You right. know, we don't need to vote for any particular person to do this. We can, we can just let it happen in, uh, in, in a natural way. Right. Yeah, I mean, I've heard it said that uh, if you want to change a system, you don't just criticize the system, but you, you show some new model or some new way of doing things. And it's kind of hard to, to, to say that in this particular instance because, you know, Central planning doesn't work and planning society doesn't work, but fixing problems is something you can do. For instance, um, the other day, uh, downtown, there was a bum passed out on the ground. It was the middle of the day. He had passed out, I guess, stayed up all night. Uh, he had a bottle of vodka next to him, and he was asleep. And another friend who um, hangs around the streets, he's not homeless. I know he has a home. Hangs around with that crowd, uh, rides up on his bike, and and I'm sort of friendly with this guy. You know, I know him, and he's like, well, you know, this guy's brain is gonna bake in the sun. You know, it's it's winter time, but it's Texas, and it was warm that day, and so he's like, I'm gonna call, I'm gonna call the paramedics, and I'm I'm worried. You know, I, I my instinct is no, don't call 911, don't do any of that. Uh, you know, the cops could come, they could throw him in the tank, or or there could be problems. Um, but he does it anyway, and I I, I felt. I felt conflicted. Like, what do I do? I, I don't feel like we should bring the state into this position. But at the same time, you know, I, I tried to help him out. I gave him water. But what if there were alternative systems? What if you had ways? Um, you know, that's, that's what really kills a monopoly, right, is competition. And people are scared because the government protects its monopoly so jealously. But I, I really feel like with media and with anything else you can think of, uh, creating alternative solutions to problems to where in the future people won't immediately think, oh, I got to call the cops or, oh, I got to call the paramedics. But people will think, oh, I got to call private security force one or I got to call guardian angels, you know? Yeah, exactly. We, I, I, I experienced that firsthand back in the late 70s, early 80s in, uh, you know, in the, in the illicit drug market. We couldn't, if we had a major injury or, you know, a shooting or something mm -hmm. like that, uh, the last thing we'd want to do is get a hospital right. or, or, you know, uh, we, we had to deal with those things on our own. Uh, and the same thing for simple stuff, you know, somebody breaks down on the road, we got to get them off the road before a cop gets there yeah. and finds them because if he gets snoopy, you know, they're, they're carrying you know, 60 or 80 pounds of whatever. Mm -hmm. And, uh, even a tire, even a simple tire change with a cop snooping around is not a good thing. Right. right. So we, we saw that, uh, I say we, my wife and I, um, she's here in the RV with me. Uh, but, but we saw that kind of activity then among bikers and among the, the drug culture that existed in Southern California at the time. And I really long for more of that in the liberty movement yeah. where we can, uh, you know, a, mes a message can go out on Facebook or whatever. And, you know, somebody is picked up in St. Louis and rides to, um, you know, Chicago uh, because there's a truck driver who's one of us, you know, mm -hmm. uh, just things like that. I, there's just so many ways we can accomplish these things. Right, right. Uh, and things like charities. There's uh, a guy I met last weekend. Um, you know, at that rally in the Capitol. And part of what he, he does for his liberty mission is he has a charity. Uh, it's small now. I think they only do it on um, a certain holiday or maybe a few certain holidays. But they go out and, and provide, um, you know, charity to people. And it's associated with this sort of freedom or this liberty movement or liberty mission. And, and doing things like that, showing other people that that we're good people. Uh, I think that that helps a lot. Um, you know, a good example for me is um, is Mormons, right? Um, my wife is so impressed with the the way at least Mormons portray themselves. You know, we we have family in Salt Lake, and we go and visit, and we used to have Mormon family in Salt Lake. My dad is no longer in that relationship, but um, 
they're very nice to each other. They 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 have good family lives. Uh, they're they're very nice and giving people. Uh, and I think that part of the reason they've I don't know if, if evolve is the right word, but part of the reason I feel their culture is that way is they felt that that was necessary. They're they're very big on proselytizing, and they do that to a lot of foreign countries and a lot of places. And um, I feel like they felt it very necessary to lead by example and show that hey. Don't you want this life? Don't you want this life where everybody smiles and is happy and has family home evening and we all have good jobs because we all help each other to get those good jobs? So I, I feel like part of what we need to do if we're to attract people is not just yell at people and call them dumb statists and, and talk about how they don't understand logic and how ridiculous they are. I guess that does have a place. But if we really want to attract people, we show them how great it is to understand the non-aggression principle. Don't you want to live within this community that never aggresses against itself or each other? That is really a good a good thought, a good point. And using the Mormons as an example is a really good uh, a good avenue because there are a lot of Mormons who th- who are uh, liberty-minded and and yeah. to one extent or another, maybe they're not full anarchists, maybe they're not full libertarians. But they, but a lot of them tend to think in those directions, if for no other reason, because you know the Mormons were treated so horribly by right. the federal government. Right. Exactly. They were they were an underclass. Uh, it's it's kind of gone in different directions because you know in Utah, in the state of Utah, it's not really like that anymore. They sort of have a pseudo theocracy uh, in parts of Utah, um, so they're not undertrodden there. But at the same time, that does make them, because they have this sort of enclave of their own culture, um, you know, they are likely to be liberty-oriented when it comes to things like states' rights and nullification of certain federal things, like we saw with all the Utah sheriffs getting on board and writing a letter to the feds saying, we're not going to enforce any of this new gun control. Uh, We'll defend the Constitution with our lives. I I think I'm paraphrasing, but that was the essence of it. Um, You know, Michael is called that sort of like similar to the Declaration of Independence in its wording, and it kind of is, um, you know, that, that by no means makes them principled anarchists, I don't think, but um, that is a good sentiment to understand that there's a principle, and the principle comes before the authority. And that's really what they're saying there. They're saying this, even though they're basing their principle on a piece of government paper, the Second Amendment, they're still saying this is a principle, and we'll defend it no matter what the authority figure says. Yeah, and I think it's important generationally as well because you know one one generation learns from the other from you know uh, as they go through, and as children are raised, finding out that you know we're not going to accept certain things from the government, we're not going right. to accept these certain actions and these certain activities, that puts a seed into the mind of the child to say, well, you know, everything that comes from the government is not necessarily good. And and once you start going down that path, then you ask yourself, okay, well then, how do I judge the good that comes from the government and the bad? And eventually, if you have a person who can think logically at all, you're gonna come to the conclusion that all everything the government gives you, it's stolen. Mm-hmm. Everything the government does is based on aggression. So therefore, nothing coming from the government can be morally acceptable. You know, and this is it's like a virus. The way this spreads, we've seen it uh, parallel. You know, uh, you know where I stand as far as you know Ron Paul being the great man and and mm-hmm. saving our movement and everything. Right. When in actuality. Uh, I would attribute George W. Bush and, and uh, <laughs> for you know the oppression right. is what causes the the market desire for liberty. Right, and and to clarify, uh, you're not saying that that's intentional on George W. Bush's part. At least I don't right. know of a conspiracy that that's that deep. But um, you're saying that because of him his intentional tyrannies, uh, that lack of freedom makes people recognize what the state really is. It's the state showing its hand, so to speak. Right, and that's not taking away from the importance of Ron Paul being a voice. It's just saying that if there's no market, if there's not a demand, if there's not a market demand, then nobody's going to buy what you're selling. Right. But people are buying what we're selling. People are buying this idea of liberty. And uh, and every time some goofy status sheriff stands up and, and holds his fist up and, and makes a proclamation like that, somewhere deep in the mind of somebody, this thought's going through their head, I have to decide what I'm going to accept from the government and what I will not accept from the government. Mm-hmm. 
And that's that to the government, to the to actually to the religion of the state. That's poison. It is. You know, that's a poison yeah. dart right in the liver. Right. Right. Yeah. It's it's exactly like that uh, that whole South Park thing of once once one episode of a show is canceled because it offends people, then the show is doomed because you've set that precedent that then people can write in and say, well, I don't want this episode to be aired because that offends this group of people. Uh, it's it's kind of the same thing with the government. Once that I feel like at least for logical people, like you said, once you decide, hey, this is an area of life that the government has no control, no legitimate control over, then you open it up um, because there's going to be ev- everybody. I, I always say this too: everybody in America, everybody in the world has at least one thing that they don't think the government should put its hand on. Uh, so if you combine those all together, it means everything the government should put its hand on. If, if you take the, the net thinking of everybody, um, then the government shouldn't do anything. Which is correct. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, how do you feel about this, too? Uh, because, you know, we're talking about philosophy and human action uh, and the way that works to free the world. Um, and technology is an outgrowth of human action. Um, but there's also this thought that's sort of floating around, uh, and I, it bounces around in my head sometimes, too. Um, this thought that technology is going to do more than anything else uh, to free us from the confines of the state. As things in the market, uh, such as the internet, but bigger than that, you know, printable guns, uh, printable drone defense systems, even printable people, you know, I, I feel like really eventually we'll reach a point to where um, we we don't have to live as, as tied to our physical bodies as we do now, uh, as tied down by biology. Um, technology could perhaps supersede that one day there could be digital people do you buy that a and b how do you feel that does that change our actions at all i kind of tend to think that it's it's possible and it's important to think about but i don't feel like it should change the way we think about pursuing the liberty mission what, what are your thoughts uh i would agree with the last part of that it shouldn't change uh how we view the liberty movement but i do believe that you know, you know, I, I, I tend to, to look backwards and say what happened before, and that'll probably happen in the future. So, you know, private individuals figuring stuff out came to the conclusion that uh, a rock with a hole in the middle rounded off around the outside makes a pretty good wheel. Mm-hmm. And then eventually somebody figured out, well, you know what? You don't need the whole rock. All you really need is like wooden spokes and the hard part around the outside. Mm-hmm. But And now the state, uh, as soon as it got the capability – it jumped in and, and usurped that. Right. And it will it has done that with every invention that's ever been invented, and it will do that with every invention that's ever invented so long as the state exists. Mm-hmm. So so we've got this parallel thing going on with individuals inventing new things constantly, and now we're in this the steamroller effect where it's almost going so fast that nobody can keep up with it because yeah. technology is almost inventing technology. Right, right. And the But the advantage, whether we recognize it at this moment in time or not, the advantage is always towards the free market, and the state is always playing catch-up. So as fast as the state can try to grab hold of a new thing and uh, and pervert it, the market is moving on to the next thing. And we might come to a point of where, like, uh, what you were talking about, the kind of escape of the of the physical being and into a digital reality, um, there's a good possibility something like that. You know, it, it, to, it, to a certain extent in the gaming world, we're already there. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we still have this outer world where the cops can still bust through your door, right. arrest the guy who's in the middle of the game and haul him away. But in thought, anyway, I think those things are all possible. And I think uh, at every turn... Technology is going to be on our side, even when it looks like maybe, maybe it's not like now with the drones. It, it seems like, holy cow, we got no place to hide from these things. Mm-hmm. But technology will fix that, and the market will always bring a solution. And maybe that's just faith, but it is kind of faith. But the thing about the market, which I, I do prefer to call it the market instead of the free market, because I feel like the free market is redundant. Um, and has been tortured to death by opponents of the market. The thing about the market is it will win because it is it's 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 not just faith to me because it's more efficient. I feel like it's been proven to be more efficient because it doesn't involve coercion. 
So it more accurately captures true desire. And because it's more accurate in what uh, what what the market wants, what people want, because it's a more accurate reflection of what people want, I think that it ends up being more efficient. And that's why it can win against statism. Uh, I guess that's just me justifying my faith, but that's kind of how I feel about it. I think that's pretty good. I think that's a, if there's any websites you want to talk about or any uh, anything else you want to add to that. Uh, yeah, I'd just like to say... Um, in case you didn't already know, uh, go to freedomfiends.com. It's uh, www.freedom, you know, like what we're always talking about, and fiends, F-E-E-N-S.com. Uh, that's, of course, a slang term for really wanting something, or as Michael said, how a kid would say fiend. So um, liberty, freedom is what we pine after. That's our addiction is is talking about liberty. So freedomfiends.com. We also got a blog there, freedomfiends.com slash blog. And we don't really do interviews on the Freedom Fiends show because the format is just me and Michael W. Dean uh, talking about things. You know, the blog has more than that. The blog has guest bloggers. But if you want to hear our interviews, um, go to uh, kittyfeet.com and uh, you can see all the interviews that mostly Michael has done. So go ahead and go there. And also check out my YouTube channel, I'm the Nema V, the N-E-E-M-A, and the letter V. And uh, there's music videos on there, and I'm going to start doing other video things that, like we talked about earlier. There's a, a sort of mock news piece. Well, it's, it's my version of a news piece uh, about self-defense rights. Uh, in the future, we should have other interviews, video interviews, and other video content coming to that as well. Thanks for coming on the show with me, Nima. It's been really great having you on. Yeah, it was my pleasure, Ben. I appreciate it. And folks, thanks for listening today. And get over to badquaker.com, where liberty is our mission. Yeah. <laughs>